Now we're going to go into the qualifications. Now he's kind of giving you the application. This is unlike anything you've ever had before. You Jews, you didn't get to go in. You just handed, you just stand, stood real far away from the tabernacle and you watched that guy in the distance walk in for you. And you hoped to God that he came out alive. Because that meant God could be with you another time. You Greeks, you've never had anything like that because the gods don't ever talk to you. They don't talk to anybody. And the only time they ever talk to you is when they want to take your wife or when they want to play games with you. You Hindus, you don't have any access to that. Because God is impersonal and knowable. And when you finally join the God force, you're going to lose your personality, identity, and individualism anyways. Allah, you had to jump through the biggest hoops on your own completely in order to make it into paradise. And even then, there's no guarantee that you'll make it into paradise, even if you live a perfect life. And there's no ever mention in the Quran about when you're in paradise, Allah will will be there with you. It's just more of a utopian society, not that Allah is there. Well, atheism, well, you're just going to become worm food anyway, so who really cares? <coughs> Buddhism, because I don't know what's on the other side. My job is not to tell you what's theirs. My job is to tell you how to get there. It's like, my job is not to tell you what's in that dark alley on 7th Avenue. My job is just to tell you to go there. Okay, well, if I don't know what's there, I'm not going, because that's scary. You go to all these religions. And so this is what he's starting off with. On the other side of that sky, there is a king who is sovereign over all things. And he's also your high priest, who's compassionate and merciful. And you can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God and be there with him intimately in a relationship. Now that is far more attractive than anything that you've ever come from in your life. So keep that in your mind as I begin to argue to you how Christ is like the priest, but also different than the high priest. And when you begin to argue that, no, 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 the law had a better way than Jesus, then you remember that the law never gave you any high priest like that. And so he starts with a little bit of the application so that you'll have a desire to hear the argument that's going to be made why Christ can be called a high priest when the law says no. And that's what we're getting into now. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest is taken from among the people and appointed to represent them before God, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal compassionately with those who are ignorant and erring, since he also is subject to weakness. And for this reason, he is obligated to make sin offerings for himself as well for the people. And no one assumes this honor on his own initiative, but only when called to it by God as in fact of Aaron, as in the fact of Aaron. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming high priest, but the one who glorified him was God, and who said to him, You are my son, today I have fathered you. As also in another place God says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life Christ offered both requests and supplications, with loud cries and tears, to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devotion. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. And by being perfected in this way, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And he was designated by God as high priest and the order of Melchizedek. 
So now he goes through the qualifications of a high priest. First qualification of a high priest is he must have compassion for the people. He comes from the people. He must be one of the humans. You, You can't have an animal representing you. You can't have an angel representing you. You can't have God representing you. If you're a sinner who is under the wrath of God and is seeking justification, only one like you can represent you, period. We understand this in our American court system. So he must be taken among the people. And he must represent them. He must come in with gifts. Look, if you are a sinner and you're going to the presence of God, you must come in with some kind of atonement gift. Now this isn't like you can't go to somebody's house without a bottle of wine or flowers or a dessert. It's The gift is the sacrifice. The, the something that covers your sins. So he must come from among the people. He must come in with some kind of sacrifice that gives him access. He must have compassion on the people. And what gives him the ability to be compassionate to the people is because he himself is weak. He himself is a sinner. He himself is ignorant. Now the difference between sympathy and empathy is sympathy says, I've lived long enough to know that that's probably really horrible Therefore, I have compassion for you. Empathy is, I've been there and suffered that exact thing. Therefore, I know exactly what you're going through and what you feel. And so that's something that the high priest has to have because he is ignorant like the people, because he is weak like the people, because he's easily tempted like the people, because he is weak and sinner like the people, then he can relate to them and he can have compassion. And so the whole point is that he must be connected to the people in such an intimate way that when he goes in with his sacrifice, he can truly represent them. And then when he comes out, he can deal out that compassion to the people. And so these are the qualifications of the high priest. Now, one of the disadvantages is because he can so sympathize and empathize and relate to the people is because he himself is weak and ignorant and a sinner. And so that is a strength for him, but it's also a weakness. Because now he has to sacrifice for his sins just as much as the people in his access, even though it's greater than the people's access into the Holy of Holies, is still severely restricted compared to what God originally wanted him to have as Adam and Eve. And so that becomes his strength, but it also is his weakness. The other thing is that no one assumes his honor, verse 4. No one can say, I'm going to be high priest. The only way that the first high priest could ever be high priest is that God said Aaron is going to be high priest. But the only reason that Aaron got it and nobody else got it was because everybody else was too horrible of a sinner at the golden calf to keep the right. So he was pretty much all that was left. And so basically God said he will be high priest. But from that point on, the only way you could ever be high priest was that you were the firstborn son of Aaron. Now, all the firstborn sons of Levi, anybody who was from the tribe of Levi, no matter what family or clan you're from, all the firstborns got to be priests in the tabernacle. All the second, third, and fourth, and whatever born sons got to be priests, but they were more like teachers throughout Israel. But only the firstborn of Aaron's line got to be actually high priests and walk into the Holy of Holies. 
And they didn't get that because God said, I want you specifically. They got that because the law said the firstborn from Aaron is high priest. So they got it through ancestry and through the law. But God didn't come every single year and appoint a specific person with an oath that he would be it. Which means your high priest could be a total loser who hates God one year. And the next year, it could be a guy who loved God. In fact, eventually, they're going to start selling the high priest out to the highest bidder between the First Testament and the Second Testament. So you never know what you got because God wasn't appointing them. They got it through ancestry of the law. And that's significant. So, yes, you can't take this upon yourself, but two, you're getting it because the law said this is the only person who's allowed to have it. So that's what the high priest is required. So verse 5, So also. Now, here's how Christ is like the high priesthood. Christ did not glorify himself in becoming high priest, but the one who glorified him was God. So just like them, Christ did not say, hey, I'm just deciding I'm going to be high priest. God appointed him. And so this is God's chosen one. But we've also seen other comparisons. Other comparisons is Jesus also was taken among humans. Okay, this is the whole point. He had to become a human in order to represent us. We talked about that last week. And so the reality is he is also a human. He is also a human who's been tempted. Therefore, he is able to deal with us with sympathy and compassion. The difference is is he has not sinned, so there is no weakness strike against him. But just like, and he also brought a gift in. The difference is the gift was himself. But he'll get to that later. But the main thing that he wants to focus on right now is that God appointed him. That's That's the commonality that the author of Hebrews wants to focus on now because that's where it all starts. Right now, it doesn't matter whether he's a human or not. He's already made that point in chapter 4. Right now, it doesn't really matter about his gift. That's going to come in chapter 7, 8, and 9. Right now, what we need to start with is how is Christ able to call himself a high priest? That's where it begins. Who cares about all the other similarities right now? Right now, I want to know who hired this guy. And that's where he starts. And so he starts with God appointed him. And he banks it up with the First Testament. So Christ did not glorify himself in becoming high priest, but the one who glorified him was God, who said, quoting Psalms, You are my son, today I have fathered you. Now, that's the same psalm that we talked about on the first night. where we, That was the first major typology that we built, where the first time it's used to prove that he is the son of God, the second time is to validate his priesthood. And in this original context, Psalms has nothing to do with that, chapter 2. And so the typology is, if Jesus is the Son of God, and God has appointed him, then that gives him the right to be high priest. And we can see this two other places. At his baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon him, God comes out of heaven and says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then, at the very end, right before his crucifixion, we see him on the Transfiguration. And the Mount Transfiguration, he literally revealed himself as the glory of God. Now, this is what's really cool. Well, everything's really cool. But um, So Ezekiel has a vision, back in chapter 1, of God's glory leaving the tabernacle. 
Because Israel is asking the question, God cannot destroy Judah and the tabernacle because God dwells there. So God decides to give him an answer. So he gives his eagle a vision. In the vision, he sees the pillar of fire that's been there since 1446 to now 586 B.C. So about a thousand years. So you see this pillar of fire, but God opens his eyes and allows him to see more. And what he sees is this pillar of fire is literally the chariot of God. And at the top of the pillar of fire, God's sitting on top of it. And that's where he says, I did not see God. I saw the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. And so he sees that glory of God leaving the Holy of Holies through the veil, exiting out the holy place, exiting out the tabernacle, the temple, going down the Mount of Kidron, the valley, which is the same place that Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, goes up the Mount of Olives, which is the same place that Christ ascended into heaven and will come back, and disappears. And then all of a sudden the Babylonians come and destroy everything. So that answers the question, how can God allow his holy city to be destroyed? It's not holy anymore if he's not there. So in chapter 40, he then has a vision, and the city is like way bigger now this time. And there's more gates... There was only one gate in the tabernacle. Now there's more gates. And the gates are bigger than the wall, which means there's more access to God. And out of the gate, out of the tabernacle, is a river of water flowing. And he sees the glory of God returning back to the tabernacle, or to the temple, same thing. That vision was never fulfilled. So the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple in 586. And in 515, they rebuilt the temple after their exile, but it was pathetic. It says all the old men who remember what the old one looked like cried. Okay, And the glory of God never, ever, ever returned. That was the book of Nehemiah. Or no, sorry, Ezra. The glory of God never returned. And so then they went through the 400 silent years where no prophet came, the glory of God didn't come. God still spoke and worked in the nation. Daniel makes that very clear how that happens. But there's no direct word, no direct revelation, no direct presence from God. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And Jesus led, his, the people were led to his birthplace through a moving star. Have you ever asked that question? Like, if you ever looked at the sky, the, there's no star in the sky that's ever pointed to a specific house. I mean, no matter where you walk, I mean, sometimes when you're walking, it feels like the moon or the stars are moving with you if you're driving a car, but it doesn't ever rest over one particular house. So that means a star had to be more than just a star. It might have started off as a star to get the attention of people who looked at the stars, but it had to be more, if it came over a very specific house and a town that probably had more more than a thousand people in it, probably a hundred homes at the most, and it's like, yep, that one, it's got to be more than a star. Perhaps this is Shekinah glory of God. And so it leads into that. And it leads him to the literal Son of God. Then later, Jesus comes along, and in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And it says they did not know that he was talking about himself. So he's transferring that literal physical temple to himself and saying, I'm the new temple. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, he unveils himself, whatever that looks like, and he literally begins to shine with the glory of God, which means he's revealing himself as the actual glory of God, because Hebrews says he is the radiance of God's glory, and then we can quote so many other passages in the Bible too. And then two weeks after that, 
He gets on a donkey, which was a symbol of royalty in the ancient world, not humility, because David and Solomon were both put on a donkey when they celebrated them as king. And he comes down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley, up into the Eastern Gate, and goes into the temple, and he clears the temple out, overturning all the tables. And he says, Why have you made my father's house? He's entering in as the glory of God. He reveals himself as the glory of God, and he enters into the temple. He fulfills Ezekiel's vision. Then, 50 days later, sorry, then at his crucifixion, he is pierced in the side, and the blood comes out, atoning for the sins, and the water comes out the exact same side of his body as Ezekiel's vision of the temple did. And then 50 days later, the Holy Spirit comes down in pillars of fire and indwells all of us. And the Holy Spirit, who is also symbolic of water, begins to flow out into every tribe and every nation, which is interesting that Ezekiel's vision of a temple had a gate facing every direction of the compass of the earth. And now everybody has access. And so that's Ezekiel's vision being fulfilled. And so the reality here is that Christ literally has become our high priest and given us access and entrance into the Holy of Holies far greater than anything that the whole Testament priest could have ever done. And so right before that, at the transfiguration, he says, this is my son. And this time he says, do what he commands you or tells you. That two places is coming from this. This is my son. So we see him in the first testament appointing Jesus as your high priest. Then we see God at the beginning of his ministry saying, this is my high priest. Then at the end of his ministry, we see him saying divinely, this is my high priest. Then he actually makes the doorway open to you by ripping the veil through his death and resurrection. Then he literally pours out the temple inside of you through the Holy Spirit. This is the one that Christ, God has appointed as high priest. And later the question is, to which of any of the high priests did they ever do this for you? Why would you want to go back to that when you have this? Then he goes on, he quotes Psalm 110 again. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now we've already talked about Psalm 110 already. We talked about the first part, that I will make your enemies your footstool. Now, he's not ready to unpack that second line, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek, until chapter 7. So, we're not there yet. Okay, But he gives you a little tense. So, verse 7. During his earthly life, Christ offered both requests and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devotion. Now, this is the garden. And, he's, and with the, the idea is that it's all throughout his life he cried out to God. But ultimately it hit his climax in the garden when he said, I don't want to drink of this cup. I'm gonna, I, you are the almighty living God who is righteous and perfect and eternal. And you've got to drink the wrath of God that will separate you from him, but you are God. 
Now, I know we always think about the crucifixion, and if you've ever looked at what a real crucifixion, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, that's Disney World compared to what really happened. I, I know they all like, oh my gosh, that was overblown, and all the critics said that was way too much, but if you actually read Roman soldiers, Cicero, who was a famous senator, senator during the Roman Empire, who actually saw them with it, is way worse than that. And I know we think, wow, that was painful. That was intense. I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. And I say, amen, 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 amen. But that is nothing compared to the almighty living God who is God being separated from God in the Trinity. And even if it was for one second, that's still going to be a hell unlike anything that any of us could ever go to. For God to be separated from God. And so he's crying out, I don't want to do this. And it says that God heard him. Now the word heard there, when it's used in the Bible, doesn't just mean God's like, okay, I hear you. Sometimes I hear my kids, but I don't always respond. And the Bible heard means God heard and answered the prayer. Because God delivered him from the wrath of God. Yes, he drank it, but it didn't keep him dead and God ended up as 1st Peter chapter 2 says vindicated him by raising him from the dead and so here's the reality God heard him and delivered him now unfortunately for us usually God delivers us through suffering usually he will answer our prayers and he will save us and he will heal us he will guarantee I guarantee you Every time you cry out for healing and rescue and vindication, He will. But a lot of times it's through the suffering. Like if you're praying to God that He's curing you of cancer, He will eventually. He will either cure you right then or you will die and be cured. But you will be cured, but it will always be through suffering. And so don't think that just because Christ did die, God did not answer His prayer. Because if God didn't answer His prayer, He would have stayed dead. God always answers the prayers if you're praying in the name of Christ, which means according to his character and will, not like abracadabra, say Jesus at the end. And so the reality is God heard him and God delivered him. Now, if God did this for his son and his son gave you the right to be called sons and daughters, then will he not do that for you? Will he not do that for you? And so this is one that God appointed And this is one that God heard and answered and delivered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now Jesus Christ, the almighty, all-knowing God, learned. What does that mean? Well, I'll skirt around it a little bit for fear of being heretical. (laughs) But in some ways, there are things that God does not know. And there's some things that God doesn't know, and I praise Him for that. God does not know what it's like to be weak. And we don't want a God that knows what it's like to be weak. God doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. He says that He cannot be tempted, very specifically in the First Testament. We want a God who cannot be tempted. In some sense, God knows what sin is, but he doesn't experientially know what it's like to actually commit a sin and thank God for that. 
And I'm going to stop there because I don't know where else to go, and I don't want to get into danger. So in some sense, why did Christ become a human? Because if, we, if one of the requirements of a priest is that they have to be able to be sympathetic and empathetic and all that and be, know what it's like to do, suffer, then he has to become that. So to a certain extent, did Christ before his incarnation ever know what it's like to say, I don't want to do this, God? Has God ever been tempted to not obey God? Jesus was. was has God ever been weak? Jesus was. What did Jesus learn? It's not that Jesus didn't know certain things and learned it, but it says he learned through obedience. It meant that he actually began to experientially know for himself what it means to be weak, limited, and tempted, and suffer. So that he can better know what it's like to be us so that he could better give us compassion and mercy when we boldly and confidently go to the throne of God. And other than that, what does it mean for the God of the universe to learn? I don't know. And even though i there, I hope I did it justice. Because that's, that's, that's the scary place to start explaining too much. But beyond that, I'm just going to lay that the mystery of God. But I do think that I can say that, because I think that's the whole point of the context right here. The whole point is he's trying to make the point that you do have a priest that knows what it's like to be weak and frail and tempted like you. Therefore, you can have compassion. And so that's why he's now saying he learned it. He learned to be obedient through that. Not that he didn't know. He's like, oh my gosh, I've got to keep working on my son because he doesn't know how to be obedient. It doesn't mean that kind of learned obedience. It's just he learned through experience what it means to obey when you don't want to obey. He meant, learned what it meant to be obedient when you're weak and you're frail. Not that he had to learn how to be obedient. He learned what it meant to be this as he obeyed. Does that make sense? And so, and that all works because in Philippians, sorry, yes, Philippians, he says that he gave up the right to know things. So once again, like I use the illustration of wrestling my little daughter. I have the full strength to dominate her and hurt her if I want to, but I choose not to exercise that. So this is why it's so, and this illustrates, because we don't want to go too far to the extreme and we say, well, therefore, he was limited. He didn't know how to do it. Because remember when they came to him to arrest him in the garden, and they said, are you the, are you the king? And Jesus says, I am. And it threw the entire regiment of soldiers on their butt. And he was showing right there, I could access all the power of the universe at any moment that I want because I am. But I choose not to because I have a greater mission to accomplish. So I'm going to obey God by being weak so that you can kill me. Even though at any moment you shove all that stuff in my body and I'm greater than Superman, it will not pierce me. It will not hurt me. There's nothing you can do to hurt me, but I choose not to access that power so that I can be weak for you and become your great high priest so I'll give you access to God. And that's very important. You cannot take Christ out of the Bible. Because in the Bible, we see a Christ who is weak, he is tempted, 
He is flawed, not flawed, but he is um, frail. And that gives him the right to know what it's like to be us so he could sympathize with us. But there are times where he clearly demonstrates his power so that we don't go too far the, that way into error and assume, therefore, he was flawed. Does that make sense? And that's the beauty of God. And I think that perfectly, that, that, that's the most real experiential unpacking what Philippians means. That he emptied himself but he could have accessed who he was at any moment, but chose not to, so he could become our great high priest. And that speaks even more greater volumes to who he is. Because you and I, if we had the power, we would use it. We do not have the self-control to allow somebody to beat on us and hurt us and defeat us when we truly are not weak. And Christ says, I'm not weak, but I will take it for you. And I think that's very significant. And in that way, Christ learned. It's not that he didn't know how. It's not that he didn't know he needed to get it in his head. It's that he experienced things that he had not experienced before so that he could give us compassion and mercy and grace. But... Because he also tapped in and exercised the full strength of his power of being God. He was able to conquer the death, conquer the grave, and conquer the devil, and come back to life. Therefore, he's not really, truly weak. He chose not to access it for a little while. Does that make sense? And this is the beauty of a God. Anybody can exercise their strength, but who can become weak because they love you? Who can become weak because they love you? And by being perfected, remember perfected does not mean that he was lacking and became more perfect. It means that he accomplished and completed his mission. That the only way he could accomplish his mission is by dying. And so therefore, he completed his mission And this way he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The only way you can access this great high priest is through obedience. Now once again, obedience in the Bible does not mean perfectly living a sinless life. Because we're not capable of that. Obedience means walking with God. And walking with God means that I'm pursuing obedience to God. I love God so much that I want to be obedient and I'll do everything that it takes to be obedient. That means being the Word, praying, getting accountability, gathering together with the believers, worshiping, praising, whatever, all those disciplines of the Christian faith so that I can be as righteous as possible and that when I do sin, that sin... It matters so much to me that it violated my relationship with God that I will obediently confess and repent. Because even repentance is obedience. And so that's what he means. Because it's very important. We don't obey God because we're trying to please him. And I don't, I mean that in the sense of trying to get him to accept us so that we're worthy to come into his presence. Because we never will be able to accomplish that. If you're trying to obey God and trying to make Him happy, you never, ever will make Him happy and please Him. We obey Him 
because it brings us pleasure to bring Him pleasure when we give in our hearts to Him. We want to make our Father happy. We want to know our Father better. We want to have a greater access to our Father. We want to become more like our Father. And therefore we desire and we find pleasure in obeying Him. Because then when I find pleasure in wanting to become more like Him, that's what pleases Him, is my heart, not because I obeyed Him. Does that make sense? And so the reality here is that's the kind of obedience He's saying. When I obey Christ, because I want to know Him more, I want to please Him through my desire. Look, my, my daughter's... When they help me do things around the house, they ch- t- most of the time they have to screw things up and slow me down. But I enjoy having them with me because they so badly want to be with me. I was putting together this grill the other day and Natasha's like, go, daddy, go. Go, daddy, go. It's like, okay. Oh my God, there's a little cheerleader here. And I'm only taking it out of the box right now. So it's like... so. But that brings me great joy. Now, there were many times I was like, don't touch that, don't touch that. And when I repaired my washing machine, she broke apart and I had to drive further to go get another part. But there was joy in that. She slowed me down, she complicated things, and she cost me a little extra money. But there's joy because she wasn't trying to get every little thing right to make me happy. She just wanted to be there with me and do it with me. And that's brought brought me pleasure. Not her desire for perfection in order to win my approval, but by the fact that she just wants to be there with me. And even when she screws it all up, I still find so much joy in it because her heart just wants to be with me. And that's obedience in the Bible. Because Saul didn't have the heart. And David did. But they both sinned horrendously. And yet one was called obedient. But he wasn't. Because God looks at the heart. And so that's what we must remember is when God, when the Bible calls us to obedience, it's not the legalism obedience that shows us worthy to be accessing this. It is the child faith obedience that shows us the ability to access this eternal life. And that's the obedience the Bible's talking about. Because God wants our heart. God wants our minds. And once you surrender that, then the behavior will eventually come over time. Because only Christ can do that. And if it's all about behavior for you, like I always say, then go join any religion. But if it's about knowing your Father and being with Him, because you can't think of anything better to do but then to be with Daddy, then welcome to Christianity. But at the same time, you respect Dad because you know what it took and what he requires for you to have access to him. And that's how you balance that fear of God and yet that Daddy, Abba, Father of God. And that's one of the greatest challenges in our life because in Different times of the week, different areas of our life, different personalities, we tend to swing to one or the other and abuse the intimacy or abuse the legalism. 
And it's maintaining both of those. And so this is the God that you have. Like a high priest, He gives you access. But unlike those high priests, He gives you a way cooler, greater, superior, awesome, intimate, physical access to God. Because it wasn't a tabernacle in space, time, and matter. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as human in space, time, and matter. And that's what makes him greater. And he was designated by God as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we'll get to that later in chapter 7. He keeps throwing that out to you. 